What is it about the church that is worth considering? Why are we in one? Why are we, why are we one? Is that the way to say that? Why are, are we one? You see, the word church can be a little bit confusing. And my guess is that if you said, what is church, or what do you think of when you hear the word church to 100 people in the world, you'd get a lot of different answers. My hope would be that you would get joyful answers. People would say, oh, let me tell you what church means to me. Then I bet you would get a lot of neutral, but, you know, considerate and respectful sort of Webster's Dictionary kind of attempts at definitions of church. And then, of course, you would get people who the word church itself is an occasion for bristling. And one of the things that we want to be clear about, one of the things I believe that Paul attempts to give to Timothy as an instruction, as a help for him as a young man, as he's trying to organize this church in Ephesus, is to help him think through, well, what are we exactly? What are we trying to do? What is this thing? What's it for? What is the church? I'm going to, well, actually, I'm not going to tell you the title yet. We'll get there in a second. I thought of a title for this section of of Scripture, but it's a little bit of a a wordplay. I don't think it's quite a pun, but you'll be the judge of that. I I thought about my joy in wordplay and puns a lot over this weekend because we have twin boys, our oldest, that turned 13 years old yesterday. And we were reminiscing and thinking back over all of those years, just what a gift it is for us to be a family, what a wonder it is uh, to be a father and a mother. And one of the things that I reflected on as we walked, you know, throughout the day and even going to to bed the night before as we had a meal to start to, to celebrate them and I was thinking about and I wanted to defend my terrible humor within my home. You know, because sometimes dads get a, get a bad rap. I mean, I think mostly it's lighthearted, but we are absolutely kings of terrible jokes and dry humor and that kind of thing. And uh, I was laying on one of the twin beds there, you know, as we were going to, to bed with the kids and laughing and talking with them. And I said, you know what, I think there's a really good reason that dads get into the habit of saying the most kind of not funny but funny things. And I told them how many times from age one to six years old, everything I said in the spirit of a joke they thought was the funniest thing in the world. I mean, who can survive that? You know how people say that the the danger of celebrity or something is you just gather this people around you just fawn over you and tell you everything you do is awesome, so you end up a scoundrel. Well, I think what happens with dads, they end up, they all think they're a comedian because they're children. I mean, the smallest things. I could hide underneath the blanket when they were coming in for bed at night. They would find me there, and then as soon as they would jump in, I would say, why are you in my bed? This is a dad-sized bed. And they would roll off the bed laughing. It's not your bed, Dad. It's just because it's big doesn't mean that it has to be yours. And they're just, they just split a gut. And you know what happens to me when I go to bed? I just think to myself, man, i got to make more jokes. Did you see what happened in there? I killed it. So I think about words. I think about making obvious statements. Part of the joy of being a dad is showing children, too, the way that things in the world connect. And sometimes the way that things connect is that they connect in odd ways and the words come together funny because we live in a funny place. Creation is magical almost in in its essence because we have a God who created it from nothing and who is ultimately and endlessly creative. 
And so I'm going to, in a spirit of an attempt to kind of wordplay, I'm going to title this section for us to help to think about church with this phrase, Behold Church. And I say that for a few different reasons. One, I think behold is an underutilized word in our day and age. You don't say this very often. No one hands up, no one pulls up their favorite YouTube clip on their phone, says to their coworkers, behold, a dog riding a skateboard. But you should, because behold is a beckoning call. Behold is to instruct someone not only to look, but to wonder. And I think what Paul's telling us when we consider this is, Remember, look at the church and then also wonder, but then also within the word behold, I have my two points that I think that Paul makes, and that is in order to understand church, we need to consider what the church is, in other words, be, and then in order to understand church, we need to understand what it is that it proclaims, in other words, what does it hold? So the two things we're going to look at in order to define church and to behold it is to think about the word be. What is it to be church, and then what is the church holding? Be and hold. You see what I did there? We're good? Okay, we got it. Behold church. First, I'm going to give three different descriptions, or I'm going, to descri- I'm going to say the three different descriptions that Paul gives to describe what a church is. He says these three things about the church. It is a household It is a church of the living God. It's the descriptor at the end then that helps us to see what a church ought to be. And then finally, it is a pillar and foundation of the truth. So household, it is a church of the living God, and it is a pillar and foundation of the truth, or a pillar and a buttress of the truth. You see, Paul wants to help Timothy the best he possibly can to figure it out what it is that he's trying to organize. And so he's going to throw a bunch of different descriptions at it. He has to give him multiple descriptions, I believe, because the church is multifaceted. It's an organism and an organization. And we're going to see that in the way that he describes it. But he also is so desperate to help Timothy understand what this thing is because he can't be there for him to see it. He's giving him instructions over the phone. He's trying to give him pictures in his brain of how is this thing supposed to be. It's sad because Paul opens it by saying, I'm going to have to give you the descriptions because I'm not there. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, as far as we can tell throughout history and the missionary journeys of Paul, he never made it to Ephesus. So this was the handbook. This was all that was given in order for them to understand what are we, what has the Spirit of God made us to be? And he says, if I delay, I want you to know how one ought to behave in, and then he gives these descriptions of what a church is. I'm going to start by describing and thinking about that first one, a household. Here's how you should act. Here's how you should be organized in the household. This is a Greek word called oikos. And the funny thing about the way that this word works in the Bible is that it oftentimes kind of interchangeably can be used to describe either the house itself, so imagine a a person dutifully putting the boards together and building the actual structure with the idea that, oh, people could live here. This is a home, building the house in the sense of someone coming through and saying, we need to consider the ambiance in this place because, after all, a family needs to live here. 
And sometimes the Bible, when it uses this word for household, it means the actual physical place, building a house. But then other times, like here, it's translated, and I think it's used in this particular instance in this way, it describes household. And there's a subtle difference between those two things. House gives the impression of the structure, the thing in which a family lives. Household describes the people who make up the family, make up the home. And Paul says to Timothy, I want you first and foremost to believe and to think on the church in this way. It is the kind of things that happens in a full, stirring, whirring family. It is the place that they live, the place they inhabit, the place that they encounter one another in all of their joys and all of their tears and all of their meals. It is household. And this is worth pondering. Do you know that we are more family eternally than any family meal that you've ever had? That our allegiances one day, the ones that we have here in this world, no matter how strong and wonderful your family is, those allegiances will slowly fade and you will begin to see the inheritance that you have in a family that is eternal and strong and forever. One commentary says this, the fact that we are family has profound implications. For starters, it means that we are in an eternal relationship. We will always, always be brothers and sisters. I love that the commentary mentions this as well, though. If you're not getting along with your brothers and sisters, the eternal aspect of this may not seem so inviting. Like a long family road trip in the car to Mount Rushmore forever. However, the happy fact is this, that in heaven, the idea of family and eternal relationship will be perfectly redeemed. And the family with whom we will dwell will be ours perfectly in unity and harmony and love forever. See, in some ways, what we're doing in all of the good gifts that God gives us in a sense of family, and whether we've experienced it or not, I know that the experience of family on this, in this fallen world is up and it's down, but if we can even imagine, if you can bring yourself to imagine even the Hallmark movie kind of family moments, whether you've experienced them or not, all of those here in this fallen world are mere practices. They're just whispers. They're a call from a distant land for the kind of family, love, and connection that we will have eternally. It's not a small thing that God invites us to call him Father and says, you are my children. This is a household. It means that every decision that we make within a church, it means that behind all of the relational clamoring that takes place within the church, we must always remember and keep in mind that there is something about this place that is not mere corporate. It's not a corporation. It's not organization only. We are family. And so a familial kind of affection ought to be something that's cultivated. We treat one another with all the love and respect that would be due brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. In fact, Scripture is full of the way that we ought to relate with one another, and it uses all of these concepts. 
to describe who we are. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I know you're trying to get a handle on it and there's a lot going on, but just imagine a full family. That's the design here. That's what's happening in this place. He goes on though and he says, not only is it a house or a household that you're building, but it is the church, the place, the gathering of the living God. And I think this is intended to give hope Because anyone who's tried to keep a family together and imagine all of the different desires and all the different problems that could come up, Timothy may be discouraged and think to himself, no, I've seen this before. It's really hard to be a healthy family. So what is the hope of our family, the church? What makes us distinct? What's the engine of our familial life together? And so Paul gives him this second description. He says, well, here's what a church is built on, or here's what the reality, the engine, the source of the life within this family, this household of God, it is the living God himself that is there. There's a section in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's funny because 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's doing what he's doing in Timothy. He's giving instructions to show them how they should behave in the household of God. And things have gotten crazy in Corinth. And there's one little phrase where Paul gives a hopeful instruction to them about what might happen if they could organize themselves and if they could worship in the way that God desired for them to be. And I'm just going to read verse 24 and verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 14. He says this, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What a hopeful thing to imagine for the church. Paul's telling the church in Corinth, no, here's the thing, this is why I'm putting this in order. And he's just given them an entire list of all the ways their worship should be ordered. Not chaotic and not self-serving and not jumping in front of one another. And then he gives them this, this little idea of hope. He says, imagine this with me. What if it was so evident to the world that we were a family, a place that we gathered around, and the thing that marked us, what was most amazing, is that God was actually there? What if someone left our gatherings and went to their neighbors and said, "I I just want you to come to church with me. I can't explain it except to say this, when I'm there, I meet God. He's promised his presence, that where we gather, he is there in our Midst, and I love this section of Corinthians. It's not just order for order's sake, it's order to highlight and to rejoice in the fact that God's presence is there. And it's as if Paul says, I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen. The church does what it can do, it organizes itself, it puts some stuff on a screen, and we put beautiful songs together, and I'm trying my best to explain stuff. And then you know what happens is that people can show up and they meet the living God. I think the emphasis here, the living God, is making a point to say, not like all those other places that promise a blessing, but it's just a piece of silver or wood. It's an idol that's dead and mute. If someone says to you, well, what is the church? Why should I go? You might want to say to them, well, you should come because God is there. It's not that he's absent totally from everywhere else, but he's made appointments with us to be here. He's given us means by which he will be present and in our midst. We meet him. 
when we address him as Father, unified in his name. We meet him when we declare the good gospel that he's given us in his Son through song. We meet him when we open his word and hear his voice. We meet him at the table where he has prepared bread and wine. We meet him in fellowship with one another as the Spirit of God indwells us. So Paul says to Timothy, care about the church. God is there. This should inform what we do. You ever been moved by knowing someone is there or not? Even my dog knows that the presence of someone, especially an authority figure, someone who loves you, matters. I remember distinctly a time when my dog, for whatever reason, for like two, two months, just determined that furniture was his. I don't know when it was, sometime when he was two years and six months old or something. He'd been totally fine up to that point. And then all of a sudden, we would come downstairs and he would just be sitting on furniture and just stare us down. Like, I'm just trying this out. And we did everything we could, of course, and I, I, I can joyfully state we won. We won the war. I just want to say that we won. It's not his. I have receipts. But there was a specific moment. I remember specifically instructing my dog. I'm talking to him. No, no, no. You're down. You're down. You're down. And he lays down. And then as I was walking back upstairs away, I just had a moment. I just thought to myself, I wonder if he waits for me to leave. I just, I wonder. So I run around the corner and I position myself on our stairs. Actually, now that I describe it, he is kind of in charge of me. I lay down in a weird way. I'm like a grown man contorting my body to stare down through stairs to watch him. I promise this is my victory story. <laughs> but my dog, who is a, a complete picture of perfect obedience in the moment that I left him, within about five seconds of me leaving the room, stood up, walked back into the living room, looked at all the furniture, put his paw on one, then came back around, looked down the hallway, and waited to see if anyone was there, and seeing no one, immediately went and jumped on the sofa. The moment I came down the stairs, angry at him, he heard my footsteps, he jumped off and ran into his kennel. Now this was an amazing illustration to me that even my dog understood that the presence of someone the authority of someone in his midst, someone who could hold him to account, someone who was a standard bearer, would change the way that he should live. In other words, he thought, well, as long as Lance isn't here, I'll live like this. So I'm just going to say the most basic and the most obvious thing. Would it change the way we church if God was not here? happen on the positive side? Does it change the way that we church? Because we believe that God is here. He's listening. I tell people all the time, prayer is the most wonderful privilege in the world, but it's kind of terrifying as well. In one sense, you could say to someone, can you, you should pray because when you pray in Jesus' name, God listens. And that scene is such good news. God listens. He hears you. You ever thought about it on the other flip side? It's kind of terrifying too. I just want you to know that God hears you. 
hear. God hears you. He's listening. He's in our midst. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to remind the people there. This isn't a free-for-all. They don't just get to claim whatever they want to claim. The living God is there in their midst. Remind them of this. Show them what a wonder and a joy it is. I mean, we're not this kind of place, but the fact that the living God is here could make some people want to take a little flag and do a lap. So excited God is here. And at the same time, the fact that God is here for mere mortals like us should make us say, let's walk and live in reverence before him. First description, it's a household. There's familial relationships between us. It's worth working it out and loving one another and forgiving because we're family forever. Second, it changes the what we are because this is the place that God dwells. He dwells in this place specifically, not the dead God, the risen living one here in our midst. That's what the church is. God is here. And then finally, he says this, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress are a foundation of the truth. John Stott once said that the church has a double responsibility. First, as a foundation, it needs to hold firm to truth so that it does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. But secondly, as a pillar, it is to hold truth high so that it is not hidden from the world. We hold the truth firm in order to defend and confirm the gospel, and we hold it high in order to proclaim it to the world. And the church is called to be active in both of these ministries. The interesting, interesting thing about the church is its ongoing relationship to truth. The church is birthed by truth. It is ordered by truth. It holds the truth. It stewards these precious things and it declares truth. It has a message that it's been given to the world. So what we say and what we believe is not incidental to who we are. Because all of truth is God's truth and because he made us to be a relationship, in relationship with one another, you can find community and you can find love and you can find joy in all kinds of organizations across this globe. But the church has been organized specifically by a set of assertions by a gospel message, by truth that we declare, and it is those things that we must steward. What we say and how we hold it is not incidental to who we are. It is the, it is the responsibility that we've been given. It's why we exist, Paul tells Timothy. Remind the church of this. And I think that probably brings us to that second idea you see, up to this point in 1 Timothy, Paul has been telling Timothy, here's how you should organize. We've called this whole, this whole book, as we're going through it, Order in the House. And it may feel a little bit restrictive at times, just all this order, all these policies, all these ideas, don't do this and do this. And I believe that it's here that Paul tells Timothy, I want you to remind the people that they've been given something. This is not just order for order's sake. It's order in order to not... Order in order. It's given, this instruction is given so that there would be the fewest distractions 
to the gospel that the church holds. So he tells them, you should do these things and organize in this way and think about yourself as a church in these particular kind of manners or modes so that you would remember that this confession that we hold, this great confession that we hold, the mystery of godliness is our stewardship, that we have a task in the world. Mission is our task. So if the first part of the description is what the church is, that's the B section, he then goes on to glory in and describe in one particular way what it looks like to hold. The first thing you need to understand about a church is to understand what it is. The second is to understand what it holds. There's a wonderful little word here in the, beginning, in the middle of verse 16. Great indeed, he says, we confess. This word, we confess, I think is even hopeful in, in its use. Homologamonos is what it more or less sounds like. And I'm not very good at pronouncing Greek, but it's something like that. Maybe you can hear some words that you find familiar in there. The prefix indicates an all, a togetherness, a unity of voice. We all share this together. This is our shared confession that all who are in the church can confess these things together. We practice it together. I'll give you just one specific example. It's a small thing. But here's something we try to do well. I don't know if this is normal for you in a church that you grew up in or not, but we have moments in our service where we have things on the screen and then Zach says, please listen to the underlined portion. Right? And I've had questions about that before. I, we love questions, please ask. But I've also had people kind of say, that's a little weird. Feels a little Catholic, feels a little like I grew up, feels a little traditional. Don't know what to make of that. And here's what I would say. That as a church, we want as much as we possibly can to create a world in which we actually share a confession. Because here's what's very possible. It's very possible for you to know what I confess, or what does Zach confess, or what did the songs confess, what did that person up there with the microphone praying confess. But if, if and when we do that, now we can be faithful and you can, you can have an implicit agreement and say like, yeah, we, I confess that too, that's totally fine, I just confess it quietly and silently in my heart. But we want to provide opportunities to not assume those things. It's very easy to be a spectator in that particular instance. And so in small ways, not over the top, but in small ways and consistent ways, we call to you and we say, let's just for a moment here share a confession together. Let's remember that it's this part of the Bible that we, that we hold. And let's use the same words so that we are unified in the things that we speak Shared confessions, we hope, have a purpose. They're helping us to describe the thing that Paul sees in the church in 1 Timothy 3. That is a shared confession. These are the things that we confess together. And it's this confession that he calls the mystery of godliness. Do you guys like mysteries? I want to describe in this word just for a minute because when I was a kid, mysteries were horrible. There was a show that I cannot believe was allowed to air called Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> this show aired during the time when children were awake. And I would sit and sometimes Unsolved Mysteries would come on, and they might as well have just gone on screen and said something like this, Hello children, 
Are you going to try to sleep tonight? <laughs> Countless children this very evening will be swept away to an unknown realm. All that's ever been left behind is their hair and blood and teeth. And then the show ends. And nothing else. Because it's an unsolved mystery. Also, why did we like that show? Wouldn't it have been better? Solved mysteries. Then you get both, but you can sleep at night. The Bible uses the word mystery all the time, and here's the, the sense in which when Scripture uses the word mystery to describe gospel, it means something like this. That what was once hidden has now been revealed. So mystery in Scripture is more about shrouding, things that have been shrouded and then pulled back. And ultimately, when the Gospels attempted to be described, and what Paul's saying here, this mystery of godliness, what he means is what a wonderful revealing took place in Christ. That this entire world of God's standards and truth and our fallenness and sin and the, the chasm between us how would this work? The cry of Job's heart when he cried out and said, there's no mediator between me and, and God. He's up there and I'm down here. How could we ever meet this massive conundrum, the problem of our estrangement from God? Questions of how could the blood of bulls and goats ever, ever pay the penalty of sin? The question of would a Messiah ever come? And would God be proclaimed to the nations? And when will the promises be fulfilled? All of these questions, the things that were once shrouded, now revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is that mystery, that unveiling, that Paul says to Timothy, this is what it looks like. We need to hold out and hold on and hold up that mystery, the person of Jesus and salvation that's found in him. It may be marked separately in your Bibles. I don't know when you look at it, does that little section where it starts with he was manifested in the flesh, is it sort of pulled apart? Is it set differently in text or in, maybe not in font, but probably set apart in the text? And that is because every indication seems to show that this particular section, what Paul is doing is quoting a portion of a favorite early church hymn. He would have been borrowing a confession that they all knew. And I just love this. You know why I just love it? Because he just said, we confess. Remember all the things that I said, the invitation to get people to say the same things? It's why we love songs in church. Whether you know it or not, you rehearse the gospel and you memorize the gospel through the use of song. And here again in song, he says, here's our shared confession. And then he likely gives them a portion of an early church hymn that would have been received by all. I guess it would have been the hymn that no one can disagree on. I don't know what that would be in our day and age. You know, some songs, people are like, that's my jam. And the other person is saying, that's decidedly not my jam. So I'm trying to think of the equivalent hymn. This would be like, it is well, maybe, from the early church. Amazing grace. Never once heard a Christian say, you know what I can't stand? That amazing grace. So not only was it universally received and accepted, but likely loved and known, and so he gives them these statements. It's likely that earlier in the hymn, 
that Christ as Messiah would have been presented forward. And here Paul picks up the truths that we're holding as a church, the things that we're proclaiming, our confession. And I'll just go through them quickly as lines of this, of this song. Now, in English, it doesn't come through, but people who know Greek way better than me marvel at this particular hymn and say that it is a work of poetry, that it's beautiful in the way that it is written. For us, the beauty is mostly seen, I believe, in the things that we proclaim concerning Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. In other words, what the church is called to do is to glory in, to receive, and then to hold on to the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that we have Emmanuel, God, with us. More than that, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, that he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, and then day after day after day for 33 years lived a perfect life. Life, he was manifested in the flesh, God here in our midst. Second, he was vindicated by the Spirit. What we proclaim concerning Jesus, our shared confession, is that Jesus Christ and him alone was shown to be the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. That it was Jesus baptized by John the Baptist upon whom the, the dove descended and the heavens opened. And God the Father spoke and said, this is my Son, vindicated by the Spirit. More than that, Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, after spending time in the wilderness, and then empowered by the Spirit through the entirety of His earthly ministry, performing miracle after miracle after miracle. The final miracle being that vindication of the Spirit by whom the Father raised the Son. Jesus Christ, come with us, Emmanuel, strengthened, empowered, shown to be Messiah through miracles and ultimately through his overcoming of the grave. Seen by angels. Jesus, that Messiah, that fulfillment of a gospel, the message into which angels longed to look, that Messiah who made spirits quake. That Messiah who was seen by demons and devils and cried out to him, you are the son of God, please leave us alone. Jesus, the one who bonded and met flesh and spirit perfectly and eternally. This is the Jesus we proclaim. This Jesus, his ministry, his message was proclaimed among the nations the emphasis here is among the nations. We proclaim a Jesus that is for all, a Hebrew Messiah for all peoples. Jesus who once and for all gathered all to himself. One sacrifice, one faith, one person. That's who we're holding. This is what the church, the reason we rehearse it again and again and again is to not lose this. More than that, Paul points out the wonder of this, that this same Jesus manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels, he was proclaimed among the nations, and get this, people believed on him. The church's existence itself is evidence of the glory of Jesus Christ. We preach and people believe. This is what it means to be the church. We proclaim Christ and people are moved by him as 
Savior, by him as hope, by him as the one who could forgive them. And they believe. And finally, the church proclaims that Jesus not only come in the flesh, not only incarnate, not only living a perfect life, not only crucified, not only resurrected, but we proclaim a Jesus who has been taken up into glory. He ascended so that he could send the Spirit of God to dwell in our midst. He ascended so that he could ever live to make intercession for us. We have this Jesus. We are his people. He is our firstborn brother. And we have to proclaim him. It is this task, it is this holding that marks who we are. What is a church? Well, a church can be described, it's a family. A church is a place or an organization in some ways. And what is a church? Well, a church is a steward of assertions, but then ultimately, what is a church? Well, a church is a church is a church in so much as it is faithful to Jesus Christ, who is its head. And we have to hold on. The last thing that we should want is to get all of these organizational realities right, be the best family we can and have the best meals, and the whole time we're just loosening our grip on the reality of Jesus and the gospel. We hold. That's what we do. It's who we are. And here's the thing. All of us, I believe that every human being is designed for this. Now, we are fallen, and we will not get this perfectly right. We will be the kind of family that has grudges and needs to make amends. And we'll be the kind of family that has people in authority that don't quite get it. But everywhere and at any time this is done well, it is a, an invitation for us to believe and to remember what we've been designed to be. It is my firmest conviction that God's greatest hope, his plan, his desire for the world is a fully functioning, wonderfully loving, familial, holding, strong, asserting, welcoming, grace-giving church. The church is God's plan for the world. And I pray that the Spirit of God helps us to do this well enough so that someone even with the most hardened of hearts who says, I've been hurt too many times, if we could just say to them, almost like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 14, well, what if? What if we just suspended all of that hurt for a second and thought to ourselves, what if we could be this? What if we were this kind of people? And it's my firmest belief that when we are that and hold out that vision, that there is something in eternity placed in the hearts of every single person on the planet who says, yes, I've been designed for a father and I've been designed for a perfect family and I see the truth as it is in Jesus and I want to hold on to him and proclaim him for the rest of my existence. It's why I've been designed. I am more me here in this family than I'm anywhere else. And when we're that, then what we should say to everyone, we should go out into the highways and the byways and our neighborhoods and our coworkers into their cubicle if we have to. We should say, I, you got to come see this. Behold, church. I know that, doesn't that sound strange? Is that the churchiest thing that's ever been said by a pastor? 
I mean it. And I think the Spirit of God can do this in our midst. Let's pray. God, I ask that your vision for the church and the world would be more of a reality. And we confess all the ways we get it wrong. God, help us to be humble about the ways that church just completely is confused. When we are more self-serving and consumer than we are family, God, forgive us. When we are more concerned with power and lording it over than serving, God, forgive us. When we use positions in the church to judge and to set aside, to jettison rather than to welcome and to call out with grace, God, forgive us. When we fall in love with our own opinions and our own, ide- our own ideas and our own preferences rather than holding on to the truth that was once delivered, God, forgive us. And I pray, help me to be a part, I pray that we could be a part of the, the glory of your church in this world. Spirit of God, move in our midst and make us more beautiful, more welcoming, more family. We need your help with this, but we we sense the possibility. So God help us, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.